Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Rhinoceros. I'm your host, Erich Skruwala. I want someone leading the country who's saying, let's try it differently because we're not afraid of failing, that we can make we can make our healthcare system better. We can take care of our health providers better. We can do end-of-life care better. We can do all of this better, and we're going to screw it up a little bit. That's Jill Smith. Jill is a licensed mental health counselor in Rhode Island with over 20 years of experience. She's worked in low-income community outreach, psychiatric hospitals, and higher education. Jill sees many people struggling with anxiety. She also works with many first responders and teachers. In the clip, Jill's talking about the need for leadership and fearless innovation. Leadership was a recurring theme of the conversation that Joe and I had with Jill. The void of federal leadership in this pandemic has been obvious, and it's tragic. How many lives did we lose because our leaders refused to lead? We may never know. I didn't realize, though, that the lack of leadership affected me, too. That became much clearer this past Saturday night, the day after our conversation. On Saturday, President Barack Obama addressed high school seniors on national television. And in a few short minutes, he offered us so much of what we've been missing. He was honest about the uncertainty we're all facing. He was empathetic to the hardships that we're all enduring. And he was optimistic at the resiliency of the American people to meet the challenge of the moment. It's not fair to expect our leaders to have all the answers. It's not fair to demand that they be perfect, that they always make the right decision. But it is fair to expect that they tell us the truth, even when the truth is scary. It's fair to expect them to understand how we experience the world. And it's fair to ask them to reassure us in uncertain times. President Obama reminded us what leadership looks like on Saturday. It's now our job to remember that and demand better of our leaders in the future and to vote them out when they fall short. Hi, everybody, and welcome to today's episode. I'm happy to be joined by uh, my good friend, Joe Luciano. Joe, how you doing? Good, Eric. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. It's a beautiful day today, isn't it? It absolutely is. And uh, Joe and I are also joined today by Jill Smith, who is a therapist in Rhode Island. Jill, how you doing? I'm good. Hi, Eric. Hi, Joe. Um, so I thought, Jill, we would start just by, um, I'm really interested to know, you know, as a therapist, what what your experience has been over these last eight weeks. Um, what are, are you seeing things that are different than you normally see? Um, what are the, you know, what are some new kinds of issues that people might be having? So I think the true answer is it's been evolving. I think there's been themes and patterns. And as the weeks go on, those themes and patterns shift and change. Mm. And so at the very beginning, the first couple of weeks, I think it was a matter of people accepting that there's change and there's how do we adjust and there's a little bit of panic, but there's also a little bit of excitement and motivation that comes with that. And different kinds of people with different kinds of coping skills were managing in different ways. But as we've evolved, I feel I, what I was saying this week to most of my clients was this feels like a third wave. Mm-hmm. It feels like a third wave now that there is some sense that this is going to go on for quite some time, that it's hitting people in a different way than it was in the first two phases. The fa- yeah. first phase of acceptance, the second phase of sort of adjusting and figuring out a new normal and coming to a place where people could sustain this for a chunk of time. I think the idea that this, you know, now that some of the states are lifting a little, but even when they're lifting, that our actual everyday life is 
going to be different for at least the foreseeable future is hitting people differently. Yeah, yeah. We, did you have like certain expectations about how this would affect how how would it, how this would affect people? As kind of we started to understand what we what kind of period we were going to go into. Like, did you have things in advance that you were thinking were going to happen? Well, I think it happened so quickly. So for I'm up in Rhode Island, and so our governor shut the state down very quickly. So on May 13th, there was the first sort of fear of the spread, and by Monday, she had shut down the state. And so it, it happened very quickly. My, it, I had a couple things that were really surprising to me. I'm fascinated by the dynamics of this. I mean, terrible. This for, for so many people, this is terrible. And for so many people, this is challenging in so many different ways. But as a social scientist, it's also really fascinating to see how different groups of people are responding in ways that are completely surprising to me. I've spent over 20 years watching people and watching the patterns of how we do things. You know, I'm a big fan of Malcolm Gladwell. Um, I'm a big fan of all the trends in social dynamics, but seeing things that are unprecedented and seeing how people are responding in new ways is so interesting. And so I have clients, I see a lot of clients with a lot of anxiety issues. And in some ways I had this 20 something year old have some real awareness in week three, she said, you know, as it turns out, I've been training for this for years. <laughs> and I thought that was so funny and interesting. And when I thought about it, all my clients who have some real debilitating anxiety issues, they're actually doing okay for the first two waves. Like they, they've got skills for this. They've got coping skills. They know what they're doing. And then some of my, you know, more type A, more high functioning out in the world, social people really struggle a lot more, which was also interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And then in this phase, what I've noticed just in this past week, I see um, a good handful of retired teachers who are just great and retired college professors, retired scientists, and they're, they're having a very different experience starting this week really has been my, uh, has been my, what I've been noticing in that they're saying, I don't know if I want to live like this. Mm. Like, I don't know if assessing my risk also requires me to assess my quality of life and if this is in, so I had one woman who is young and in my mind, young and healthy and, um, but over 70 saying, if this is the last year of my life, I don't want to live it in my house. And so that I think is the new conversation that I'm seeing in different forms, which is surprising to me and interesting. Yeah. And, you know, it changes the conversation about what people are having. Yeah. Joe, I wonder, I wonder like how much of people's reaction on that score is a function of just the, you know, abject ineptness of the way we've dealt with it yeah. you know like how much of this is coming out of just we have no earthly idea how long we have to do the thing we have to do yeah i, I wonder if that state of permanent impermanence is disrupting our normal way of addressing risk or evaluating risk um you know but it, i was interested in jill's bio in terms of the part where she talks in her bio about working with first responders. And something struck me when I read that because I wonder, and not overextending the comparison, but I wonder if we've all become first responders in a certain way to a crisis disproportionate to anything we've ever experienced. Now we're, we're obviously not all EMT or nurses or doctors, but we're having to respond in a very unique way to grapple with something that's so threatening and so uh, difficult to uh, determine our behavior. Um, so Jill, is there something to how we're responding to it? For sure. I mean, I'm, I'm nodding my head as you're saying this because I think, I think we are all first responders. I think the concern, my, my experience with first responders is their job isn't usually 
to sustain it for this long with no predictable outcome, right? And so how do you ongoing contain essentially a crisis? How do you stay vigilant and how do you, your brain and body remain vigilant without the wear and tear when there's no end in sight? And I think we're asking a lot of people. I think we're asking a lot of parents who are home, homeschooling their kids. We're asking teachers, a lot of teachers, to teach in a totally different way. We're asking a lot of doctors to continue to go to work, nurses to continue to go to work, janitorial staff to continue to going to work, not for a week, not for two weeks, not until the building gets fixed. We're talking months and years at this point. And for my first responders and for treatment providers in general, there's been more than a few that have said, as soon as this is over, whenever that may be, that they're not going back. Mm. That the wear and tear of this has been too much for them. And I, I have some real concerns about the long-term effects for our providers, for our front, frontline providers, about the sustainability emotionally and psychologically. Yeah, it, rem- it reminds me actually, guys, of, um, of when, you know, of all the, all the workers post 9-11 in the rescue and recovery operation, and it was just day after day after day. Um, I had a good friend who, who was the, the night manager, night manager, he, worked for the port authority. So he was the night commander um, at the site every day for whatever it was, nine months. And, you know, when we think of emergency services, we think of acute, immediate, short-term needs. This is not that. This is a, this is quickly becoming a, a chronic, everyday, relentless situation. Um, I wonder if there are parallels to some of the experiences that that um, you know the, those those responders post 9/11 and the residual effects they have. I wonder if some of those things will be instructive to you know helping out the first responders in this crisis. Yeah, but you have a sense we're playing out an entire multi generational um, stigma of mental health. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's no White House task force on mental health addressing of COVID 19. There's no, you know, it's, it's not necessarily, a, it's talking about the economy. Let's get the economy restarted. And I wonder, how do we get people's emotional longitude, latitude realigned after we quote unquote come out of this? It's interesting how still as a society, we don't seem to want to talk about mental health as being as critical as financial health or physical health, but that mental health equation seems to be the lag leader in all of the task forces and dialogues that I, I see. Occasionally yeah. an article will sneak through or there'll be some forum or discussion, but we don't seem to be mobilizing about what will be like in our heart and our soul at the end of this. Yeah, certainly not mobilizing in any sort of coordinated, sustainable way. Yeah. So our, I, sorry. No, no, go ahead. I mean, are, are, are we missing? are we missing a key part of what is going to open the economy, you know, because the, like take the entertainment business. We, we open up movie theaters. People want to go to movie theaters. Are they going to be too afraid to go to movie theaters? You open up an office building. Are people going to be too afraid? Have we completely forgotten the residual emotional effects of, uh, of, (laughs) of the virus and, and, and having to deal with it? Yeah. And are there any coping skills universally available and in place? And why are we all recreating the wheel? Why are we all? So in the last, I meet with a bunch of clinical groups of psychologists and and therapists, and there is this real frustration that, so in our state, the governor Raimondo has been from the beginning, very proactive about mental health. The day that she closed the state, she, um, she 
declared that all the insurance companies would cover tele mental health, mental health teletherapy at the full rate, you know, and the insurance companies complied to a, to a, on its face, they complied. And so it was, the, you know, access to services was much better. So people could access our services. We've been doing mental health, this telehealth for um, quite a few weeks now, but they're not all paying. They're paying portions. There's some co-payments yeah. required. Yeah. Some not, it's very confusing. And she has been saying this all along, but I don't know in other states that have not had someone at the head saying we're prioritizing mental health with a full awareness that if we don't manage the mental health of the workers every day and everybody, the parents, the workers, the teachers, the um, medical providers, that the economy is going to collapse around that. Because if people are too afraid to go back to work, they're not going to go back to work. Yeah, yeah. And it's really, you know, like this, this whole conversation that we're having, the, the hodgepodge, this is just a microcosm of the overall Yes, the overall no leadership approach to yeah. There's no there's no focused centralized leadership, um, national leadership. Um, it's all it's all driven by by states and municipalities, and and in some instances and in some states, um, I don't think in you know in our state, Joe and I are in Connecticut. I don't think that's an issue here, but in some states, you even have a tug of war between uh, a, a governor and a municipal leader. Um, Florida being one one key example, uh, where the governor uh, the governor countermanded a you know a mayoral order to shelter in place, um, and, and so there's no consistency anywhere. Hey Jill, as a clinician, then what do you make of unfair question? But what do you make of um, showing up in Michigan at the state capitol with weapons to make your point that you know give me liberty? or give me death what, what what's the undertow there i wonder i wonder i don't know what the i have thoughts about it but i'm not i don't know what the motivation is for that but i wonder if there was a more centralized unifying message if that wouldn't have been necessary mm. right because in the abs in a vacuum it's amazing what goes in there right in a vacuum all sorts of things can sort of be sucked into that space and so if you don't have a voice or a unifying voice or a suggestion of unifying ways to manage this, or like Eric was saying, the idea of how are we managing this mental health stuff universally across the country. We're a big country. We're a big, very varied communities, varied populations. But if there's no universal message, and then when there's so much conflict in the universal messages that we are getting from the federal level or even from the state level, then people feel necessary to take charge in some way. And I, you know, for me, it's all, I believe it's all fear-based, so. Yeah. Pulling back, like, that's a really interesting point, Joe, but if, well, let's pull back the lens and, and so forget that they have guns, forget that they're storming the Capitol. Um, are you experiencing in your practice any, you know, do you have, do you have clients that, um, that are, you know, like opposed to uh, the stay-in-place orders and, you know, it's an infringement on my freedom. Are you seeing any of that um, in, in your practice with your with your clients, Jill? I'm seeing some of it. I think, you know, I see as a bear, I see um, first responders, I see a lot of teachers, I see that, that group of retired people. I see um, Vietnam vets and mm -hmm. um, what they call old timers and AA guys who have been in the program for a long time. And so I see a good sort of spread of the population in the conversation that I have with people who are really saying, I'm not gonna be forced to do this we have a bigger conversation of, okay, then let's talk about who you're doing it for. Let's talk about what your sacrifice means. Let's talk about what the bigger conversation is. 
let's talk about this through the lens of compassion, that it's okay if we disagree, but can we keep everyone safe? Because we are all in this together, believe that or not, we are. What you do affects me, what I do affects you. And so you don't have to agree with me, but can we agree that we should be taking care of each other is the bigger conversation. And for me, on the very micro level, I have these conversations of what's so scary about taking one step to make someone near you feel better? What's so scary about that? What's, what's keeping you from doing that? And then if it's a choice, then they're not being forced to do anything. Right, right. Because guys, you know, I, to me, to me, Joe, it's like the gun thing, you know, that the armed terrorists at the Capitol and, and storming, like the, there's a whole layer that to me, there are multiple layers to what's going on there. And I'm really interested. I'm not that I'm not interested in, in the, in the gun piece, but I think there's a, there's both a political component to what we're seeing and there's an emotional component to what we're seeing. And to me, it feels like there's an opportunistic parasite inciting the political response by playing on people's emotions and fears. Right. So, so what is it, what is that underlying emotion that is allowing people to be, um, at least in my view, to be manipulated in a way that they're taking AK-47s, you know, into, into, you know, Lansing, Michigan, or East Lansing, Michigan, wherever the hell the capital of Michigan is. Um, what do you think that is? What do you guys think that is? Oh, I think it's a, um, I think the sensibility of being vulnerable and losing something you know, if, if you lose your freedom of motion, if you lose your right to bear arms, if you lose your right to assemble, if you lose your normalcy, you know, I think it's playing out on a large scale that I feel vulnerable. I feel like I'm losing something in the translation of having something imposed on me. And I think showing up with weapons is a manifestation of saying, I have the right to bear arms. I'm going to show you what I have the right to do. I have the right to protest, assemble, yeah. bear arms, etc. It's almost like a laundry list of things that I just want to reinforce what my rights are in case the government doesn't remember. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think there's a lot of fear inherent in, in these responses, but, and I think the fear relates back to what was tapped um, in 2016 that elected Trump, Um, a fear of a loss of a sense of self, um, defined through the, you know, defined through a lens of nationalism and a kind of nationalism that no longer exists because the United States is not the same country it was 50 years ago. And I think it's an easily tapped emotion that can lead to these kinds of political reactions that lead to, I'm going to grab my AK-47, I'm going to go down to the courthouse, or I'm going to go down to the, the Capitol. But I think at its core, I think at its core, it's, it, it's fear-based and it's a relationship between fear of a virus and fear of death to fear of who I identify as, as an American is no longer what it, what it is to be an American, right? And I think that's a lot about what has happened politically over the last four years. And not to get us too far afield, but, but I think a lot of that's what's going on. You know, whenever I see that the coverage of protests like this, I keep thinking the phrase that keeps ringing through my head is um, people repeat themselves when they feel like they're not being heard. Mm-hmm. I talk to someone, they keep repeating over and over the same thing over and over. I feel I wonder if that is in play in some ways, too. They don't feel heard. People don't feel heard. They don't feel seen. And so they keep upping the ante and repeating themselves over and over so they can be acknowledged. And I wonder, having no political 
savvy at all. But I wonder when you talk about 2016, I think people who wanted to be heard and wanted to be seen voted that way. And I wonder if this is a similar reaction, right? I don't feel heard. Yeah. I don't feel seen. Yeah. I don't count it. And this is how they're trying to, you know, the shock value makes people be noticed. Yeah, a remanifestation of old grievances that, you know, let's face it, have not been addressed. Right. Have not been addressed from a policy standpoint, forget a political standpoint. But what, what are, I think societally what our faces are being rubbed in is the lack of universal health care, the lack of survivable wage, the lack of um, a safety net. You know, so within a span of a handful of months, the country has had to gather itself let's say out of Washington, D.C., and create the very things that other countries around the world already had in place. Yeah. But we've been playing catch-up ball societally, yeah. let alone medically. <laughs> and, and that's been, I think, a great strain for everyone is seeing the rate of change of, you know, I don't hear anybody mocking, you know, Denmark and it's this, that, and the other thing relevant to the safety net and the infrastructure. You know, we always used to hear oh, America has figured it out. Well, now America is trying to catch up with things that other countries already had, and on top of it, deal with a global pandemic. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a really great point. And it kind of brings up, it brings up kind of this other, this other issue that I think is kind of underlying a lot of this, and that's this concept of scarcity. People have lost their employment, people are losing their incomes, they're worried about losing their house. Um, and we have a response that, isn't fully meeting those needs from a national perspective. But I think we've been ingrained over a long period of time to believe that, that there is scarcity in everything. And to, to kind of feed it back into our conversation about, you know, armed, uh, you know, armed rebellion about stay-at-home orders, you know, a scarcity of resources, a scarcity of political capital, a scarcity of, of everything. I think that's a big piece of what we're seeing. Um, and so when you add that to generalized fear of death, plus generalized uncertainty of what life looks like, then you have a real powder keg that's just waiting, you know, to explode. I think that's really well said. I think that's really well said. You know, I, I was thinking a couple of nights ago about whether or not this response to the global pandemic should have been turned over to the military and should have been run as a military operation nationally. Because in a certain way, I, I've always sensed, and I could be entirely wrong, and, and Jill, I'd be interested from your having dealt with veterans, there seems to be a military ethos that we could be in the room and disagree, but when we come out of the room, we all say the same thing. We're all on the same page. And anyone who deviates from that is, you're, you're breaking the, the code, you're breaking the culture, of the military. I think part of the issue has become the lack of discipline in our elected officials in their ability to actually run a military operation, not just in terms of deliverables and delivery, but in terms of how to pronounce a mission, commit to a mission, and execute a mission, and that level of discipline. I think if I were president, I would have gotten the Joint Chiefs of Staff and said, you know what? We're a little too discombobulated on the elected official civilian side. We need to turn this thing over to you guys. Run this like a military operation. We're at war with a virus. Figure out how to win the war. And then march in single file because you guys are good at that. You're good at commitment, execution, and, and um, 
one voice. So go after it. <laughs> so that's a fascinating way to think of this. But I wonder if this just circles right back to what we were originally talking about, which is there's a, the military functions in a framework of a unifying singular voice that they all act in support of, right? Yeah. That yeah. in and of itself, the trickle-down effect of that is order. So in Rhode Island, the National, Rhode Island, Rhode Island National Guard was, was right at the, at the beginning, uh, was ta tasked with running all of the testing sites. They have testing sites at the state, um, the three state schools. And I had to get tested early on just because I had been sick. And it was so incredibly efficiently run in the security I felt with that level of professionalism and smiles behind the mask, like the whole thing. It was really incredibly reassuring. So it's interesting that you say this because I was so efficiently run pleasant. It didn't feel scary to have people in military uniforms telling me where to go. It just felt incredibly well organized and reassuring. Yeah. I think though, Joe, what you're talking about, you're talking about a chain of command. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and it, you know, it should be turned over to the military, but these things are usually turned over to a military or a military like response, whether it's our actual military run through the military or a military run through FEMA. But in all of these cases, it's all organized through a chain of command. And what we're, we're circling back to the same thing. The chain of command of our military starts with one person. It's the president of the United States. And we have a president who is unable or unwilling or both to exercise that leadership role in directing the chain of command underneath him through the military. Well, that's interesting because as the commander in chief, <clears throat> if I were an advisor to him, I would say, you're now the commander in chief. You're not the president as you're perceiving your presidential role as being like a super CEO. You're now the commander in chief to actually orchestrate a unified one voice, one message approach. But when you're as undisciplined as our president seems to be, or as driven to have himself be that person and not hand the keys of the car over to, let's say, the generals, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, et cetera, it still has to be about you. And in that erratic behavior, when it's about you, you're not going to be running a military operation. You're going to be running a circus or a sideshow or something that lets you take a bow, lets you be front and center. Um, but there does seem to be something about the fact that there's been the allowance to have dissent as to our response. Like, I, I always have a sense of reading books on, on war and how the military operates. That once you commit to the mission, you're committed to the mission. You may not have agreed necessarily to the exact approach, but once you leave that meeting room, that tent, you know, it's about the mission and there's no dissent. Um, right. And that's part of the fabric of how you operate as a disciplined event. And as a disciplined collective. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But again, doesn't that come back to into overall leadership in the decision-making process. Why do we have dissent? We have dissent because voices aren't being heard. We have dissent because experts are being ignored. We have dissent because we don't have a unifying principle behind how we're going to make decisions. And then once the decision is made, how we're going to implement it. So we have such an incomplete process starting from 
the top that there you know there's no way that anybody is going to walk with the same you know walk in lockstep speak with one voice because that one voice hasn't been adequately developed you know can i push back on that a bit Please. i i think that the embedded culture of the legislative and executive branch of government does not lend itself even on the best day with the best leader to an appropriate response given the threat you know i i, I think even if we had picked someone at the top who was airtight buttoned down very smart highly disciplined not erratic etc cetera, etc cetera, i think because the government runs as a political operation as much as it does a operation operation you would need to have somebody void or some institution void of politics to be able to drive the proper response to this level of an emergency and and you know politics is everywhere etc cetera, etc cetera. but i've yeah. always viewed the military as kind of being at least as scrub clean as the political sensibilities you can get because once they lay out the mission and have concurrence as to how they're going to get there, they're all about taking that hill. Mm -hmm. They're not about having a lot of public displays of public debate and disagreement, et cetera, et cetera. So it's almost as if, you know, doctors aren't political in my mind. You know, they're battling an illness. Clinicians like Jill are not political. They're attending to people's health. The military is not political when it comes to here's the mission and here's the war we're waging and here's what victory looks like mm -hmm. but we've introduced unfortunately because of how our governmental system works that the appropriate response is by the legislative and executive branch of the government which is probably the least disciplined least political and probably in some cases has the most aberrant individuals leading it you know not necessarily a roadmap for success mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I still think, you know, I still think um, it, it, it comes down to a question of, of leadership because, you know, we have a system that, that provides roles for each part of our government. There is a role for the judiciary. There's a role for the legislature. There's a role for the executive. And in some instances, those roles overlap and they have to work together. And on instance, in, in other instances, each body operates alone in certain areas. And to my mind, dealing with the public health crisis and protecting citizens is a function that falls very squarely within the executive branch. Now, to be sure, this response requires coordination with the legislature to provide appropriate economic response to citizens who are feeling the aftermath and effects of it. But it still feels to me that that good, solid leadership at the top from a president of the United States allows the rest of everything to flow. And, and I look, to be sure, Everything is political, but things are less political in certain circumstances, or at least they used to be, or at least we want them to be, or at least they should be. But I think you are pointing out, Joe, that they're not. Yeah, it seems like even though we're facing perhaps the greatest global threat in 100 years, we're going to a book of how to respond that, uh, what was it, Lincoln, who said, um, State of the Union Address, 1862, we, we must disenthrall ourselves from how we go about doing things um, because the level of the crisis is larger and none of us can escape 
no matter how insignificant we are. So, you know, there wasn't a, well, maybe there was, but I don't imagine there was kind of um, Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi and Trump and the Joint Chiefs of Staff and, you know, fill in the blank, sitting in a war room saying, all right, how do we, how do we address this, this, you know, capital T-H-I-S, you know, versus how we might normally go about getting from here to there? You know, who has to be in charge and who has to do what to whom to get there? Because this is kind of like the aliens are attacking now. And whatever rule book we're normally going to maybe doesn't actually apply. Can I can I jump in? Absolutely. So what I wonder is, do they even agree on what this is? That's part of the conversation in the war room, isn't it? Regardless who's having the conversation, if the people making trying to help solve the problem don't agree on what the problem is then where do you even start well that's that's the problem and so then i wonder as i've been watching as the weeks progress and we're watching trends and how people respond when i see the governor of new york creating a consortium of states i wonder if because there lacks federal leadership if people in these you know geographical areas are actually trying to figure it out for themselves Right. You're seeing someone that the the people that the states, at least from my point of view, from watching the northeast states, what they agree on, the people who agree on what the this is, they're working together now to make it work. That doesn't mean that Georgia agrees with what the this is, but the states that are participating agree and they're making it work in a smaller geographical area than the United States in other parts of the country, you know, California and Oregon. They're doing other things, too. So it's interesting to see how. Some people are responding because we can argue all day about what the this is and who's in charge and who's not doing their job, but we still have a crisis on our hands every day that needs to be managed and smaller groups of people are starting to manage it, right? But you know, yes and no. I think smaller groups are managing it, but if there's, let, let, let me give you a real provocative statement. Why criticize the president? I mean, to what end? You know, you know, Q and A at press conferences. You know, getting him in the back of the head and poking him. Well, to what end? You I, know, to, I agree with the question. To what end? What's the What's the goal here? Yeah, what's the goal here? You know, the commander in chief. You know, let's um, let's have a debate as to how he's doing doing it. Uh, I I would wonder if if I were facilitating a conversation in the basement of the White House amongst you know, Pence and Trump and Schumer and Pelosi and Mitch McConnell and the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I mean, like, hey, we have to act like there's no room for criticism. We're going to agree on a game plan and there cannot be any politicalization in any way, shape or form. We can't have any deviation because the normal rules would say, here's how we're going to behave. And this is an extraordinary threat. Extraordinary. From a clinical point of view, when I watch, the, the, when I can watch the news conferences, I, I don't understand why so much energy is being expended unnecessarily in ways, when someone tells you who they are by their behavior and their language, you should believe them. The expectation that someone's going to change suddenly with no motivating force is unreasonable and, and a waste of your time. Yeah. And so then instead of putting more energy in, you respond smarter, right? You figure out what is your actual goal? What is the means to the end to get there? And how can I, with humility, get there for the greater good? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I, I don't understand the poking of Trump. If you expect him to suddenly respond differently, I think that's incredibly short-sighted. 
Well, I mean, I think, listen, I think the, the regional approaches certain governors have taken is, you know, is their way of saying, I think, Joe, we don't really care what, what you say or what you think or what you suggest. We're not going to try and poke you. We need to deal with a real life crisis on our hands. People are dying. If you're not going to lead, we're going to do it ourselves. But that's, that's because they filled a void, didn't they? They did. Yeah. No, they, they didn't push back on a thing. There was no, no thing. There was so no thing could, to push back on. Exactly. There's no thing to push back on. Yeah. So, you know, the, the federal government in some way absolved itself of having to provide national leadership and left a void. So states started filling it in, in some ways, depending on the party affiliation of the governor or the right. party affiliation of the legislature or the conservative or liberal nature of the relevant court, you know, Wisconsin, for example. Mm-hmm. So, so at the, at the front end, at the front end of the crisis, there was a lack of imagination in how to address the crisis. And people fell into their, their places and spaces, their roles. And, and I would submit the media did as well and has continued yeah. to. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, couldn't you go so far as to say, that, I mean, these are all choices. Yes, absolutely. You know, these are all choices and a choice was made that we're not going to deal with it. We're not going to have a coordinated national response. We're not going to tell people what they should or shouldn't do. And you're right. Why do they do it that way? Why don't they do what, you know, we would normally expect a leader to do and, and, and lead? It doesn't matter why. The reality is they're not. And I think, you know, we could take, we, we could take another angle at this and say, um, I think one of the things we may look back five years, 10 years from now at this whole crisis on our management of it is this was a test of political small P political ideology. So the small, small C conservative view that small government is better than big government. The, you know, the small D democratic view that government has a role in, um, in how we deal with things as a society. I think you're seeing that philosophy play out, not at a national level, but at a regional level. You know, you have, you have Democratic governors who in, in New York and in Connecticut and around the Northeast who are digging into creating a top-down approach to, a coordinated approach to dealing with the crisis. And you have other places that are saying, hey, we're hands off. It's not up to us. We, you don't need us to tell you what to do. We think you guys can work it out for yourself. And I think we're going to see, you know, we're going, we're going to have some, some data that we can use. Unfortunately, I think it's going to come at the expense of human life, which is awfully tragic. But I, I think we're seeing an ideological battle at play in an actual emergency in real time. Do either of you have a... I have a sense of urgency around the idea that so much energy is going into that piece when if there was a different structure in place, we could really be innovating. We could really, we really have an opportunity to change the structure of what's not working. If there wasn't the fear of all this political, these political pieces and this, you know, this, these divergent feelings about how, what makes us American and what makes it us able to live in America. 
I keep, it just, I feel a sense of urgency, kind of like we have spoken about before, but right after 9-11, there's a sense of urgency that we could do things differently. We potentially could do things more efficiently, more, we could innovate better. We could make some real changes. I mean, the fragility of our medical system is, is an embarrassment. And this is not going to make it better. And we have got to become creative and we have got to start considering innovation. But I wonder how much we're stuck in the mud about trying to get out of this old converse, unproductive old conversation that we're missing our opportunity. There are some clever people out there who have some really good ideas, but how do we really get any momentum under that? Cause we're playing catch up all the time. Yeah. And the, the, um, the old arguments, an old way of thinking, you get the sense it'll return in force once the crisis is over. You know, that, that there'll be different opportunities maybe to, you know, I'm, I'm not sure how you go back, frankly. You know, I'm not sure when you provide the kind of um, assistance to the general population and you think that that's going to be something that you turn off after a couple of more months. Like, how do you go back there? Like, uh, like I wonder if unions will become more pronounced and more um, prevalent, if, if people will be demanding things more because now they recognize how many safety nets didn't exist. Yeah. Now it's, it's right in front of them. Well, I think there is no back to go to. That doesn't exist anymore. And who we are globally doesn't exist anymore. So yeah. there's no going back, right? It's yeah. I read this fascinating article. I wish I could remember what it, where it was from about how what people are struggling with is that the only thing that currently exists is the present, right? Our past is completely unrecognizable at this point. And there is no predictable future. We don't have enough information to even look forward a week for the most part. And so we're all struggling in this present, in the place in therapy at least that people are most uncomfortable and that we always work towards is remaining present in the present. And I think we're all stuck here. And so there is no going back. That doesn't exist. Too many things have changed globally to reinforce the inability for us individually to go back. It just doesn't exist anymore. And so I think the question is, can we recognize that? recognize that instead of stagnating, we have the opportunity to truly make some radical changes that will benefit everybody, which is a stable healthcare system. You know what I mean? Like this is not, people don't want to become doctors right now. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it's, people don't want to be nurses. People don't want to be CNAs. Like there's, this is a problem. They're going to have a problem. I have therapists who is, they're out. They've just stopped. They can't do this anymore. I mean, there, I hospitalized someone this week with um, an, a young adult with developmental disabilities with, who's been completely without services for eight weeks and nothing in place. So we had to hospitalize them. I mean, there is, there is no system in place for, this, for any, of, any sort of crisis that lasts more than a week. There's no system in place. And that cannot be sustained. Mm. If it's completely cracked, which we're close to, then that's, gonna, that's, that's, a, that's a shame. That lacks imagination. And is there even the space for that imagination to occur at this point? That's, that's what I wonder. Is there space for that? Because there's yeah. so much noise. And the building's on fire. And the building's on fire. The building's oh. on fire and we're, we're one giant bucket brigade, bucket brigade just trying to put the damn thing out. But I don't think everyone thinks the building's on fire. Well, that's the problem. Yeah. yeah. Is it, is, is, what, percentage of, what percentage of the general population do you think thinks the building's on fire? 
What do you think? I, I think it's probably it's probably a good seventy percent. Think it's on yeah. fire. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I think I think it's interesting. I think that I think that the the recognition of this as a crisis actually does not cut cut across ideological lines in the way other things do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there there is a much larger percentage who who see it for what it is. But what does that mean? You know. Well, so yeah, yeah. What what does that mean? Because it's fine. So you know, eighty percent think it. Ninety percent think it. Is that does that move? Does that move our politics anymore? On this one thing. But didn't the virus move our politics? You know, didn't it? at least well. relevant to <laughs> you know the things that Bernie Sanders would talk about that one would thought would be you know our children's children. You know, the kind of things that have been introduced over a short amount of time. Kind of incredible. Well, has it has it affected how we how we view the world ideologically? There, I could meet you. I don't. I don't know that this. Well, I'll say it this way: We don't have enough information to know whether this has changed our politics, because the only mechanism for understanding those things is through elections, and we haven't had one. You think the current data supports the fact that what this has done is it has, on both sides, eroded our confidence in the political system? That's a good point. Silence from the two of you. <laughs> well, <laughs> once again, you know. How can you get anything done if you don't have faith in what's in the leaders, in our leaders? How do you get anything? How do you, how do you get momentum at all? But wasn't that always at, like, at an all-time low over the past several years pre-virus? Like if you ask people, do you believe in our political system? Well, maybe it's kind of slightly different questions. Do you believe in the ability of the government to affect positive results or be of value or as effective or efficient, I always got a sense that people just had a really bad view of elected officials. I um, think one thing to ask that three months ago, because it's a theoretical mm-hmm. question. I think that question now, you feel it every day. The political decisions that are being made now to the average American, they're impacted by them, right? Yeah. Yeah. Three months ago, it was like an ideological conversation. Do I feel in the grand scheme of things? That's a, I think that's a, I think you're asking the same question in two different worlds. And I think now more people would say my faith in my leadership directly affects the fact if I'm getting a paycheck tomorrow and if I'm getting sick tomorrow. And I don't necessarily, I think it was a luxury to have that conversation three months ago. This is just from my perspective. I think that was a luxury to have that conversation three months ago or four, I don't even know how long it's been, four months ago. Well, you know, I think it, 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 good point. I think it might be something different, though. I think three months ago, the question might have been, do you think the behaviors and actions of the government actually have an impact on your life? Yeah. And I think many people would say, nah, not really. You know, maybe, but, maybe not. But today? Today? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And you know, I so, think that then directly affects armed militia going to the Capitol. I think it's all tied together, right? And if that, it's all one big, the same thing. We're talking about the same thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I always say that collectively we have a very short memory, you know, that we, we don't remember that certain things have happened before. We've never had, a, we've never had a, a crisis or an emergency like this one, like in this way. But we've had other rally around, you know, the flag emergencies before. 
and and we've seen the at least a temporary reaction to it to be to rally around our leaders, regardless of party, regardless of politics. We certainly saw that post 9-11 um, with George Bush. Um, and we've seen that throughout history as well. That's not happening here. And so, you know, like, is this going to undermine an already shaken faith in government? I guess my question is, are, are people going to start to redefine what government is? Because there is a, there is a serious divide between how one might view, say, Andy Cuomo versus how you might view, uh, you know, national political, political leaders, whether it's the president or Nancy Pelosi or Mitch McConnell or Chuck Schumer. You know, there, we're, we're seeing a, a, um, a big divide in, in that and how people view those political systems. Wait, do you mean Andrew Cuomo, our next president of these United States? I, you know. That Andrew Cuomo? Guys, I don't Can, can I get a hallelujah and an amen? <laughs> We're not, this is not the political show today. This is, you know, but, but I mean, now that's a situation where we have absolutely no memory whatsoever. Like this is the same guy from a year ago. He's the same guy uh, to Jill's point. You know, he's the People same evolve. guy. That, no, he doesn't. <laughs> he's the same guy. It just so happens that his brand of whatever it is he does is really effective in a moment like this, where everyone is paralyzed and says, I need somebody to make me feel better. I need somebody to be take charge, you know, fix it, Ralph kind of guy, get her done because I need to feel better. Yeah, but let me connect us to something that Jill said. If we're going to come out of the other end of this completely changed, different, you know, to Jill's point, there's no back there to go back to, yeah. right? Yeah. Then, then why not Andrew Cuomo? So I know very little about Andrew. I mean, I know some. I know. I've left. I've left Eric speechless. <laughs> so I'm going to jump in here. So what I would say is, one can't see that this is what he's really good. He's done a really good job stepping in in this way. And why can't that be the thing we use him for? Because right. if government is to serve the people, and he's serving some of the people well right now by doing this as good, well as he can possibly do it in the circumstances, right? right? Why can't that be the thing that he specializes in? Uh, but, but everybody has to be all, if, all people. What if the this is several years? See, that th this is the thing that gets a little kind of wobbly for me. It's, it's if the this is a completely different world and the this is going to be several years and it's going to look a bit like emergency, crisis, why wouldn't he make a good precedent? Wouldn't he make a good virus czar? Why, why limit it to viruses are? Why not make him I president? Think, I think if you go to Texas, you're not going to get the same response. But we're not from Texas. It's just us East Coast folks <laughs> banging around. Well, I'm not he, talking about electability. I'm he would be the president of Texas, too. Well, Texas is going to secede from the union anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I have some friends who live in Texas now. They've been there for about five years, and there's something in the water that they all drink. And uh, it's interesting. So there, and I said, what do you think? What do you think about what the Northeast is doing? And it's fascinating to hear. I'm fascinated when people's opinions are different from mine. I'm fascinated that I have a limited experience in the world and that my exposure is from the Northeast. And, but I think, isn't this how we, with very little understanding, but just to, just to clarify, isn't this how we got here in 2016? 
we failed to see the big picture. We yeah. failed to yeah. hear all the voices. Just because we think Andrew Cuomo is doing a great job does not mean the rest of the country believes us. Well, of course. I mean, come I on. Mean, did you crack open the fortune cookie of obvious things? <laughs> have this conversation and pretend like one person is the end all be all of all things in the United States. We're way I too was, that. I was just trying to drive you to the store. I was just asking a question about yeah. Andrew Cuomo. <laughs> yeah, let's face it. Like trying to, you know, like saying Andrew Cuomo is should be president because he handled New York State's response to the virus is like saying. This guy's good on TV. Let's make that guy president. Oh, no. Come on, guys. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> You're letting a little bit too much of air out of his balloon. <laughs> but maybe isn't that part of the issue with we want everything from one person? Isn't yeah. that part of the problem? Yeah, that's what our president is supposed to be, isn't he? Says who? says how we think about our president. That's why we're so disappointed in Trump. He's incomplete, or Steve Bannon said, he is an imperfect vessel. <laughs> well, so here's the thing. When the, I get a lot of referrals, right? For, I get just on the micro level, I think as we do everything as we, is how we do everything, right? It's how we do anything is how we do everything. So I get a lot of referrals across the board. And there are things that are interesting to me. I have an obligation to never treat anyone that I am not qualified to treat, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's a basic thing. We don't pretend we know stuff we don't know. That doesn't mean that I'm not then responsible for finding them a good provider who's gonna treat them with whatever they need. Whatever needs they have, I can figure that out. But pretending that anyone can be all things to all people, regardless if you are me or you're the president of the United States, there's a sense of responsibility that I don't know this, but I'm gonna find the best person to do this and I'm gonna put her in place and let her do that. Like, why can't that be the truth? So who is that person, Jill? I don't know. Like, but can there be some kind of consensus? Can we say, Andrew Cuomo, you know what? He's got a system in place. Let's take his system and we'll let all the regions modify it to what's best for them. But let's start there. Well, you know who my choice would be if that were the definition? Hmm. Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. The country does not, well, the majority of the country agrees with you, but... Yeah. Electoral by about three million give or take, give or yeah. take. i think yeah. being humble and be humility is an incredible strength and i think we lose that in the popularity of our culture so who do you guys think was the if you could go kind of through the card catalog of the last x number of presidents who you would like to have in charge of this now who, what president would you like have be sitting in the Oval Office. What are we spinning the roulette wheel? I know. Yeah, so whatever <laughs> you guys think. Come on, come on. Step out of your comfort zones. I know you can do it. Come on along with me. I'm a big fan of Barack Obama putting smart people in smart places. How about you, Eric? I know you're not easily fooled. <laughs> it's not, on some level, it's not reasonable to expect that one person can handle all that's involved in all of this. But that requires, and, and that requires a certain level of humility, right? To be able to say, I need people that are smarter than me in lots of different areas to take over certain portfolios in my name and on my behalf and on behalf of everybody. Through the lens of innovation. Yeah, through the lens of innovation. You know, and, and I think that, 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 that quality, I actually think that quality has been present in a, has been present in a number of presidents. Mm -hmm. regardless of, of ideology. I have found myself pining for George W. Bush over the last three years. 
And, you know, whatever faults he may have had as a person, as president, he certainly had some hum- level of humility to know there were things he didn't know. Yeah. So I think there are a lot of better choices. There's no ideal choice for everything, but, but it's more about finding a quality that we want in a leader we need. And understanding that, understanding the enormity of how a country our size works is beyond the capability of any one person. Yes. And unfortunately, I think oftentimes we have political expectations, whether that's what we're putting on as an electorate or whether that has been a mantra adopted by the political class in our society, that you have to be some combination of Albert Einstein and I don't know, you have to, you have to be the, the know-it-all, the Ken Jennings on Jeopardy. You, <laughs> you have to be able to do it all yourself and be infallible, not make mistakes, always have the right answer yep. and never be at a loss. We know that's, you know, instinctively, we know that's not real, but for some reason we want that. So my 16-year-old, before this happened, when Elon Musk came out with his, his truck, his like SUV, mm-hmm. um, now Elon Musk has his own issues, but let's just say, so when that came out, he- I, We could do an hour on Elon Musk. But my son said- Elon Musk for president. Oh, <laughs> he came down and he fired. said, like, like, what if he's getting, like Elon Musk, he's getting like destroyed in social media. They hit it once, it cracked, they hit it again. And I looked at him and I was like, yeah, if you got to be- if we're not going to have any innovation because it has to be perfect, we're all screwed. Yeah. Like I, you, he got, thank God he tried that. And thank God it failed because it failed so publicly. And yet we require innovation. We require mistakes. You have to be willing to make a mistake or we're stuck. And I feel like that is the con. That's what I worry about. People who are afraid to make fools of themselves or fail or make mistakes. So why can't I want someone leading the country who's saying, Let's try it differently because we're not afraid of failing. That we can make we can make our healthcare system better. We can take care of our health providers better. We can do end of life care better. We can do all of this better, and we're going to screw it up a little bit. But it's worth the effort because, as a woman, the good old days weren't so great. I mean, and I'm a white woman, so it's a lot better for me than it was for a lot of people. But the good old days is no reason to stay there. We should keep moving forward. We're going to get stuck, or we're going to fall apart. And we're seeing some of that now. I think. Yeah. yeah. So when, when Trump talks about using disinfectant and, and kind of makes outlandish statements, is that an example of just what a lack of perfection on his part or a lack of sure footedness? Well, well, I think when you have to know everything, it's really easy to pretend you know everything. So do you think that's him? That's him having to know everything. That's him living that out. Mm-hmm. I think perception's everything. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think that limits our ability to be creative and innovative and our willingness to be wrong. Mm. Interesting. Okay. Well, I'd hope we'd worked all, we would have worked all these things out by now, but uh, uh, I, yeah, guess, uh, I guess we'll have to, you know, have to muddle on for now. Jill Smith, it's been a real pleasure. Um, I'll leave it there for now. Joe, always a pleasure. Same here, my We're going to do this again. And Jill, we'll have to have you back too. So thanks everybody and uh, 